Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, Jay and I take a look at the following stories. Lawrence Hoskins was found guilty by a jury in Connecticut, and we look at the fallout from that. The Astros are accused of cheating in the night in the 2017 championship season by an ex-player. We take a look at the implications of that. How do you balance perception-based culture with a fact-based compliance program? We explore an article by Anna Romberg. Some of the twists and turns in the Cognizant case. We look at what WeWork can teach us about private company compliance in an excellent article by Erica Salmon-Byrne over from Ethisphere. We consider a guidebook to corporate governance, which is excellent. Deutsche Bank whistleblower loses an appeal. How do you, why do you need oversight of emerged companies? The trace corruption ratings are out. Uh, we look at FCPA enforcement and ask if it's inconsistent and also take a look at the SEC's enforcement numbers. And finally, we welcome a new podcast, The Compliance Kitchen, to the Compliance Podcast Network. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen of This Week in FCPA for uh, episode 180 for the week ending November 15th, 2019, the Hoskins is Guilty edition. As the fallout from the Hoskins guilty verdict still resonates, Jay and I reflect upon it and what it means to play by the rules. We also take a look at some of the week's other top compliance and ethics stories. Jay, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. We have a a jam-packed agenda today. I've never seen us have 12 stories, so I think we should... uh, Jump right in, and why don't you give us your thoughts on what happened with the Hoskins verdict last week? Sure. So Lawrence Hoskins, or Larry Hoskins, the um, former Alstom employee who um, ran or was part of the bribery scheme in Indonesia uh, for the company, was convicted individually last week. And this was obviously a big win for the Department of Justice. Um, They haven't had uh, as many wins at trial uh, over the years, as they might like, but this had a lot of uh, legal issues that went up and down. But in terms of the trial, Jay, uh, the jury absolutely bought the department's story. Uh, the verdict came back in less than a day, and when you have a guilty guilty verdict on uh, eleven of twelve counts in less than a day, that means the jury completely bought the uh, um, prosecution's version and rejected the defendant's version of events. The um, the real issue was not whether bribery occurred. Uh, Hoskins was pretty upfront admitting that, yeah, he did pay bribes on behalf of Alstom for um, uh, 
business in Indonesia, the question turned on whether he uh, was covered under the FCPA as a a foreign person working outside the United States for a a French-owned company that had a U.S. subsidiary. And it turned out he was an agent. His defense, uh, interestingly, was to basically say, yeah, I did it. I was in charge, and it was all me. I wasn't an agent of anybody. Problem with that is it's a very high-wire act, and if you misstep, you fall, and he fell. So um, big win for the Department of Justice. Uh, Lots of legal issues that may uh, go uh, up on appeal. Uh, Hoskins, however, is 69, and he's looking at probably um, five years in prison. Uh, at least, and that's based on the uh, the lowest sentence given to any of the cooperating witnesses was three years. So, um, at at his age, he just may want to cut his losses and try to negotiate a some sort of a lesser sentence and get back to his life. But he keeps fighting this. I mean, he could be looking at five, seven, or potential uh, longer years uh, with eleven of twelve counts, including money laundering counts. So um, uh, we cited articles of Dylan Tokar was covering the case from the Wall Street Journal, and he wrote about it uh, almost on a daily basis. Dick Casson, of course, broke the story to the broader compliance community, as he usually does. Uh, Mike and I, Mike Volkoff and I, considered it on uh, this week's FCPA Compliance Report podcast. So lots of good stuff out there and an important case. Um that leads us into our discussion about what it means to play by the rules, Jay. And no, this is not a slam on the Patriots or Deflategate or Spygate or even Barry Bonds for taking steroids. This is the hometown heroes, Houston Astros, have been uh, accused of uh, cheating in the form of having a camera in the center field scoreboard to catch the signals of the catcher, the signs of the catcher to the pitcher, and then relay those to the dugout for communication to the batter. Uh, this information uh, story broke in The Athletic. It was came about from an ex-Astro uh, pitcher, so you'd assume he knew of whence he spoke. Did, did and, you say disgruntled? Uh, I did not. Okay. I said, I said former, although okay. he has been called a disgruntled ex-employee. Kind of um, like a disgruntled whistleblower, huh? Kind of, just <laughs> like... Yeah, and it's just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, the Astros have got caught with their completely with their pants down. They, of course, are shocked, just shocked, shocked that there's any allegation that anyone on the team would cheat. Um, you, I, I blasted them in a blog post today. I, I, I'm just so disgusted by this. Uh, this is clearly, you know, straight tone from the top, putting up with this. But it's just one more series, one more in a series of events uh, showing that. Um, in terms of culture, uh, I don't know if it's a toxic culture, but it's certainly not an ethical culture. And uh, for since it's my team, it particularly hurts worse for me, but a um, uh, lot to, to digest on this. When did the new management team actually take over? Uh, 2011. Like you said, um, you know, you and I have many things in common. Uh, our love of movies, we love to talk about ethics and compliance and Unfortunately, now we both have uh, sports teams with a little asterisk next to their names. So your team, you can't take away those <clears throat> over 100 wins for three years in a row, but you need to seriously consider uh, it, it was a, a pretty detailed plan from cameras in center field to banging on Gatorade bottles, uh, tubs to let them know it was coming. So uh, 
I'm sure there's going to be continued fallout between uh, now and uh, February, whenever, when the pitchers and catchers start reporting. So, Jay, next we had an article in Navex Global's always excellent Ethics and Compliance Matters blog entitled Balancing Perception-Based Cultures with Facts-Based Compliance by Anna Romberg. And it follows up from a session she did at Navex's 2019 uh, virtual conference entitled Driving Lasting Impact for Compliance Investment. And she really uh, suggests in in a pretty strong language that companies need to benchmark compliance KPIs against your industry peers. Uh, don't go with your gut. Uh, do get some data. Uh, do use uh, data analytics. It is a science, but it's also an art. And she says uh, not to forget that. So uh, some pretty good words from Anna Romberg. And uh, of course, we link to it in the show notes. Uh, so next up, we've got a story that comes to us from uh, Law360. Uh, the author is Bill Weichert, and SEC's cognizant bribe suit may mean different, differing rulings. Uh, a New Jersey federal judge expressed concern over the risk of inconsistent rulings if he lets a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission suit against the former president and chief legal officer of Cognizant Technologies over an alleged bribery scheme, <coughs> excuse me, move toward a, a mid a related criminal case. So what's happening is during uh, a hearing in Newark last week, uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge Michael A. Hammer raised the possibility in addressing a bid by the new by federal prosecutors to stay the SEC action against former President Gordon Colburn and his chief legal officer Stephen Schwartz until the criminal case is resolved. Judge Hammer pointed to a scenario in which he made a discovery ruling in the civil matter before a district judge rendered a contrary opinion on the same issue in the criminal case. How do you not invite those risks in allowing discovery to go forward, uh, asked Schwartz's attorney Meredith A. Afra from Paul Weiss and Rifkin. Coburn and Schwartz are accused of taking part in a scheme to bribe an Indian official with $2 million for permission to move forward on a construction project. The SEC and federal prosecutors have alleged that the former executives authorized a contractor to pay a senior government official in Tamil Nadu, India, $2 million to secure the planning permit needed for construction. In trying to put the brakes on this SEC action, prosecutors have said a complete stay is warranted to prevent Coburn and Schwartz from maintaining material under the broader rules of civil discovery that they could not otherwise secure under the narrower scope of criminal discovery. The prosecutor later cited that the real risk that the defendants could potentially use civil discovery to obtain information they're not entitled to. So it's, um, it's kind of an interesting situation that there's both a civil and a criminal trial going on simultaneously. And uh, this is a situation that we don't see very often, but it'll be interesting to uh, follow the outcome. Uh, Tom, next, uh, tell us about what we can learn from WeWork. So we had a, a really interesting article from our colleague Erica Selman-Byrne at Ethisphere on what compliance, or rather what WeWork teaches us about private company compliance. And uh, Erica uh, is always insightful, and she is, of course, in this article, which she posted on the FCPA blog, and really talks about what private companies need to think about, even though they're private, they're held to the same standard as public companies and face the same consequences around 
uh, failure to uh, have appropriate controls, effective controls, both financial controls and compliance controls. Simply because you're private doesn't mean you're small. And we work at one point uh, claiming an evaluation north of $50 million. Um, when you do go public uh, through an IPO, if you're private, uh, it is true madness. So uh, you need to be prepared for that and really have controls in place uh, because you're going to be extraordinarily scrutinized going forward. Private equity uh, companies have their own requirements around uh, what they will uh, need in terms of uh, financial controls, and that could negatively impact your ability to either raise capital or even sell yourself. And she, she ends with uh, some great words, which are compliance and ethics matter even more than ever. And she's absolutely spot on. Ethical companies continue to attract more investors, customers, and potential employees. Millennials consider the reputation and culture of potential employers when deciding where they want to go uh, to work. Ethospheres, world's most ethical companies, uh, last year outperformed the U.S. large cap index by uh, over 10%. Uh, this was a stunning number, and it's only going to go up. So a uh, great article from uh, Erica and something that um, uh, every compliance officer uh, public or public company or private needs to consider. Jay, next up, we had a, uh, I thought, just an incredible article in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation entitled A Guidebook to Boardroom Governance Issues. You want to just see if you could tease that for us because the deep dive they take is really phenomenal. Yeah, I just uh, <clears throat> spent a while just trying to summarize this because it's jam-packed with information. And this comes to us from uh, Catherine Henderson and Amy Simmerman, who are both partners at Wilson Sonsini. And this post is based on a publication by those, the authors, in addition to Brad Sorrell, Ryan Greacher, David Berger, and Lisa Stimmel. And uh, basically, in recent years, the authors have seen boards and management increasingly grapple with a recurring set of government issues in the boardroom. And they've created this uh, publication here. This It's about a 20-page white paper. And they distill the most prevalent issues in one place to provide their clients with useful and a practical overview of the state of the law and appropriate ways to address complex governance problems. The publication is designed to be both valuable to public and private companies and various government issues overlap across these spaces. Uh, it's really almost incredibly tough to summarize this. So I'm just going to talk about the, uh, the headlines of what they talk about in each section. And we do link to the uh, link to them in the show notes. Uh, there is the version that comes up from Harvard. But if you look down into that site, you can actually download a PDF which even has more information, if you can believe it. So they take a look at the purpose of the corporation and the role of stakeholders. Um, uh, also considering the new ruling that came out by the business roundtable, not the ruling, but the new um, perspective on how to look at a corporation, board deliberations and the handling of corporate information, director independence and conflicts of interest, they took a look at a variety of contexts in which independence of directors can have significant consequences. These include compensation arrangements, transactions affecting, corp affecting corporate control, change of control transactions, transactions with other companies in which corporate ideas have an insiders have an interest, and affiliate arrangements. Then they look at the formation of board committees, 
what you should and should not put in board minutes, stockholder discovery of board records, oversight obligations, competition and corporate opportunities issues, director compensation. And then finally, uh, recent years, we've noticed that there is a real interest in succession planning at the company. So they look at not only succession planning of the executives who work at the company, but also looking at board succession planning and keeping a board's uh, membership uh, current and also having diversity. So it's, it's a great resource. And as we said, uh, we definitely link to it in the um, show notes. So, Jay, next from John Hill over at Law 360 is an article about the Second, Cir- Second Circuit Court of Appeals rejecting a Deutsche Bank whistleblower award bids. This revolves around a $55 million fine levied by the SEC on Deutsche Bank. And uh, there were uh, five claimants. Three claimants uh, received uh, awards of about $8 million each. One of those three claimants turned down the award. Uh, I think we talked about it in an earlier podcast, but two others um, did not receive awards and they brought suit claiming that they uh, should have received some award. And basically the court upheld the SEC's position that the information uh, had to have two components, one useful, but two, it had to be packaged in a form that allowed the SEC to actually utilize it. They found, the SEC had found that two of the whistleblowers who did not receive awards had packaged it in a, quote, impenetrable format, end quote. And so uh, you have to have not only uh, credible and useful information, but it's got to be in a format that the SEC uh, can utilize going forward. Um, Basically, um, one SCC staffer said that the information presented by one of the whistleblowers was simply a brown bag containing what he claimed to be evidence and that this really uh, didn't help the SEC. So um, a, a note, a memo to those who want to become uh, Dodd-Frank whistleblowers, not only does your information have to be uh, useful, but it must be packaged in a way that the SEC can actually utilize going forward. So, Jay, you have yet another in your series on uh, the role of monitor and oversight in uh, mergers and acquisitions. Why don't you tell us about that article? Thanks, Tom. Uh, This week, I consider what a monitor would review to determine if a company has adequately considered ethics and compliance during their M&A process. And there are two distinct phases in an M&A process. Uh, which make pretty much sense pre and post acquisition. In each phase, an independent monitor would look at different aspects. The first is the planning, negotiation, and due diligence. The review goes up to the point at which the transaction is consummated. From there, it becomes the post acquisition phase, the integration phase. Independent monitoring can play a role in both the pre and post acquisition phases. During the pre acquisition transaction phase, an independent monitor can come in without preconceived notions, without shackles as to any corporate expectations and perform a deep dive if necessary for the parties to share information. What we would expect to see in this integration phase is the type of culture that exists through working with the respective workforces to understand what the combined entity's culture will be. From there, we would move into the controls area to literally put an independent set of eyes on the internal controls. 
Moving to the post-acquisition phase, an independent monitor can add value by providing key pieces to help to combine these different cultures in the integration phase. This brings up two interesting observations. The first is the unintended consequence of rapid growth by companies not taking the time to digest and integrate their new acquisitions, thus leaving a gap and lack of understanding. The first area focuses on an unintended consequence of rapid growth. Many times we have seen companies, particularly smaller companies, that have tried to grow very rapidly through acquisitions and mergers. A cultural compatibility is critical for success of this. Finally, you might experience something called a pop-up problem, an issue that even with reasonably effective diligence, the partners missed. Now you are months down the road in your post-transaction and perhaps even years down the road and a lawsuit pops up. So these are uh, some of the issues that we have considered in this week's thing, uh, thing, excuse me, this week's blog. And next week, I'd love to have you join me for part five, the final part of this series, when we take a look at how an independent integrity monitor can benefit the entire M&A process. Jay, next up, the Trace Corruption Rankings for 2019 are out. Trace International has published its annual rankings of corruption in countries around the world. Um, This is not Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, but the Trace uh, Corruption Rankings. And uh, it has uh, some additional details that uh, the Transparency International uh, does not have. But um, it's uh, very useful for the compliance practitioner. Uh, You'll need to um, utilize some objective rankings in your risk ranking. It's not simply a gut feel, although I think most of us have an innate sense of where the uh, usual suspects are across the globe. So uh, we like uh, cite to rather uh, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. He writes about it, and we've also got a link to the uh, the trace. uh, corruption ranking. So uh, check it out and utilize it going forward. So uh, this isn't a softball, but um, I didn't get a chance to dive into that. Any idea where the uh, Ukraine lies on this newest ranking? Uh, I do not know the answer to Ukraine, but uh, let me see if I can figure it out while, uh, well, I can't tell you where Ukraine lies. All right. Well, if any of our crack listeners, uh, check out this week's podcast and want to write to either Tom and I and let us know where Ukraine ranks, uh, that'd be great. Uh, We dive back into CCI again, Corporate Compliance Insights. And uh, this is an article that comes to us from uh, Basparian Sims, from Lindsay Fetzer, Tad McBride, and Abby Yee. And in multiple recent cases, it seems that the DOJ has softened its approach on charging self-disclosing companies. Uh, The U.S. FCPA does not mandate self-disclosure of potential violations. However, when determining whether to charge a corporation and how to resolve such matters, prosecutors take into consideration a company's timely and voluntary disclosure. In this article, the attorneys examine recent policy changes surrounding voluntary disclosure including the March 2019 revised FCPA corporate enforcement policy. They consider two recent enforcement actions illustrating the factors companies consider when they do an evaluation. And finally, they provide guidance on factors to consider. In terms of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, um, the, the policy states that you can 
receive um, special special treatment or uh, you know um, a lesser sentence if you make voluntary disclosures, if you fully cooperate, and if you demonstrate timely and appropriate remediation steps. Uh, in the first case, they look at uh, declination was issued despite the presence of an aggregating factor. In September 2006, the U.S. public company reported to DOJ and the SEC its investigation into potential violations. Despite the fact that senior executives were involved in the bribe payments, the DOJ highlighted these reasons for uh, less strict uh, enforcement. Prompt involuntary disclosure conducted through and comprehensive investigation of the matter. They provided full and proactive cooperation. They agreed to pay a civil penalty, penalty and disgorge an amount fairly attributable to the bribe conduct. And finally, they took significant steps to remediate the misconduct, including terminating the employment and disciplining employees. In a second case, they look at a non-prosecution that agreement that was signed despite voluntary disclosure. Uh, their conclusions are is that under the enforcement policy, DOJ provides specific benefits to companies that cooperate. Nevertheless, companies evaluating whether to self-report violations should carefully consider whether the potential benefits of voluntary disclosure outweigh the risks. Some of these questions that you might want to consider is, is the company a recidivist? Is the scope of, what is the scope of the internal investigation? Did the company, was the company in a position to make a timely disclosure? The likelihood of the ability to fully cooperate and the company's ability to pay. So there is surely a benefit to the certainty that comes with disclosing an issue to the government, investigating it fully and remediating it. This is particularly true for the issuers of securities, which likely would have to restate its books and otherwise adjust securities. On the other hand, it is also true that there are significant costs to self-disclosing companies and even when a declination is received. Therefore, it's critical for companies to think carefully and do the calculus before they decide to approach the government. So, Jay, um, the we conclude with an article uh, on the New York University's program of corporate compliance and enforcement, compliance and enforcement blog, where uh, we take a look at the report of the SEC's enforcement division numbers for um, fiscal year 2019, which ended September 30 of this year. And the uh, authors, uh, lawyers at Cleary Gottlieb, conclude that uh, looking at um, kind of year-to-year statistics is, is, does not really allow um, a full uh, measure of kind of what's going on uh, absent any case-by-case analysis. The uh, things that the um, SEC is running into headwinds on are requests for quicker uh, investigations and resolutions, uh, staffing constraints uh, brought on by the Trump administration to downsize the SEC, still some issues around what is uh, the enforcement priority. Is it protecting Main Street, focusing on investment advisors, uh, threats to investors from new technology such as Bitcoin or other offerings, FCPA, uh, et cetera. So kind of notwithstanding these challenges, the um, and of course the potential um, profit disgorgement case, which was announced after this report came out, um, the numbers uh, 
do paint a bright picture, but the authors feel that a closer look reveals these headwinds that I've uh, articulated will continue into 2020 and beyond, and they uh, expect to see increasingly novel use of non-monetary relief and increased emphasis on conducting uh, investigations efficiently. So um, kind of a mixed bag, certainly from uh, Cleary Gottlieb lawyers' uh, perspective, but uh, I think the uh, SEC has, has gotten a fair amount of commentary around uh, taking a rosier picture than the numbers would uh, suggest in this report. So, Tom, you have another new uh, member of the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, can you tell us about your Houston colleague and what we should look forward to listening to? Sure. Sylvia Cernum, uh, is Sermon uh, is one of the most interesting uh, compliance practitioners I've come across Recently, she focuses really, although she can do anti-bribery, anti-corruption, and FCPA, her real focus is trade compliance, and that's the focus of her podcast. Uh, She calls it uh, What's Cooking in the Compliance Kitchen, and she has a blog site, uh, thecompliancekitchen.com, and she's got a ton, and I mean a ton, of trade compliance resources. It's one of the uh, sources I rely on. So um, I'm pleased to have her join us. Uh, She does her podcast, and she's uh, joined in the Compliance Podcast Network. So uh, welcome, Sylvia, and for all you listeners out there, head on over to the Compliance Kitchen and see what's cooking in trade compliance. So uh, any other further thoughts about about the Astros, or do we want to let our openings suffice? Uh, Actually, no, Jay. We're going to have breaking news here. Okay. Uh, Just across the transom, uh, Major League Baseball will be uh, interviewing – both the Astros managerial staff and that of your beloved Boston Red Sox, because of course they're all ex Astros, um, to uh, to see what uh, tangible evidence there is to ba- uh, to back up the paranoia front offices have around cheating. The their uh, one, one thing we didn't say was the rules have changed now, and if this had happened in 2019, there could be some pretty severe sanctions. In 2017, although we both believe ethical violations occurred, no rule violations occurred, and no legal violations occurred. That that part's changed. But what Major League Baseball has said is they will bring the hammer down on anybody who lies uh, during these investigations. So uh, I don't know if we have any uh, baseball listeners out there uh, who are going to be interviewed by Major League Baseball, but uh, Mother was right. Tell the truth. So if we just kind of look at this situation um, through the lens of both our teams, right? So I guess I've got Pats and Red Sox. You've got the Astros. Uh, Bill Belichick is perpetually known for playing it very close to the edge and pushing rule changes and trying to prove he's the smartest guy. So if we know everyone's doing it and if you're tipping your own pitches, it's not, you know, it's your bad, right? You got to keep your, uh, keep the ball in your glove and don't let them show how you're gripping it. But if you have technology, uh, whether it's videotaping or camera in, in center field, um, I, I can't believe that the Astros were the only ones to do this. They're the only ones to get caught. And it's just like, I think, you know, VW with the emissions defeater switch, they were the ones who got caught, but it's very interesting how there were so many add-on investigations. So I think, again, this swings back to the point on how are you going to play the game and how are you going to do business? And 
Is it that, you know, if I, uh, if your best friend jumped off the bridge, would you jump off too? Or are we just in such uh, an ethical morass that nobody can do the right thing? It, you know, it's really starting to bum me out. So uh, I have to reject all queries, analogies, and references to everybody doing it. Um, I don't care whether everybody was doing it. I care that the Astros are doing it. And it uh, doesn't matter to me if they're the only one that got caught. Uh, they they got caught. And they are the ones that had one of the top six greatest records in baseball uh, with 300 consecutive, three consecutive 100-win seasons, So, which is now tainted, potentially. And the question is not whether the Astros cheated. They did. The question is, did they win and cheat? Or did they win because they cheated? And I really don't like the answers to either of those questions, but um, the uh, those are the two questions that I think uh, are on the table. Um, so uh, it's a bad situation. It's bad for the Astros. Although uh, one I, I, one of the articles I read, Jay, it said that um, the Astros are so cognizant of either the cheating or the the um, impact that it had that people thought they were cheating, that Astro players would all, often uh, whistle from the dugout just to uh, try to get into the heads of the opponents. So, you know, um, who knows? It's it's bad all the way around, and I hope the Astros can start to do something to clean up the rot from the top. Well, you know, they are in Houston, and that's where the compliance evangelists live. So uh, maybe you could get a consulting gig out of this, Tom. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else uh, on the podcast uh, front that we should let folks know about? Uh, any upcoming uh, series? So. Okay. Uh, did you? We talked about your trip to Brazil last week. Any other thoughts on that? So just a, a great response from uh, uh, many new Brazilian colleagues, and they are looking, uh, looking forward to uh, greatly continuing the conversation going forward. Super. So on behalf of Houston's own compliance evangelist, Tom Fox, and me, uh, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in the FCPA, episode 180 for the week ending November 15th, 2019, the Hoskins is Guilt edition. Uh, thanks for spending your weekend with us, and we will be back here next week. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions or an answer to Jay's query, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.